Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, and as we are in at least the Thanksgiving weekend, in spite of the <clears throat> the rush to get beyond Thanksgiving so we can get to Black Friday and begin to buy and sell in anticipation of the Christmas season. It's certainly appropriate for the people of God to give thanks unto the Lord. And so I want to impress that upon us, particularly as we're at a point where we're kind of between series, having finished Luke's Gospel, so I can take a few weeks and just kind of preach on what I want to, as opposed to being guided by the next portion of Scripture in a book. So we turn this morning to the book of Psalms. The Psalms are, in fact, a divinely inspired songbook for God's people. And we find within our hymnal, one of the things that we like about the Trinity hymnal here is that there are portions of all of 150 of the Psalms found in the Baptist edition of the Trinity Hymnal. So you'll note that many occasions that we'll be singing from the Trinity Hymnal and it will say this is from Psalm such and such. And so we, we are in the habit of actually singing, not directly from the Word of God and in lieu of the, the variety of translations, that's probably a good thing. But by the paraphrasing of what we find in our hymnal from the book of the Psalms. And so the Psalms were given and were were brought together for the use of corporate worship. Brought together for the people of God even in the Old Testament times and are still of great value for us today. In particular today, as we look at Psalm 118, we this particular Psalm, we are uncertain of the author of this particular psalm, although there are those who would assert very strongly, John Calvin, for example, insists that is this is, in fact, a Davidic psalm written by King David, and certainly there is much in the psalm that would commend itself to that, that you can read some of the phrasing and some of the events that are not specifically clarified what he's talking about, but the language is very familiar to what David has given to us in other psalms that are clearly identified as Davidic psalms. So we would not make any dogmatic assertions, but it would certainly be safe to assume that the original writer here was King David. This particular psalm is one of six psalms beginning with Psalm 112, that were sung during the Passover week. And so it was one of the series of psalms that were very familiar, one likely that Jesus and His disciples sang together during the week of the Passover. And it is one that is certainly appropriate for our consideration in the Thanksgiving season. So begin reading with me here in Psalm 118, and it, we will be reading the entirety of this psalm. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress, 
I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. And He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. We would, most of us would agree that there are few things as ugly as ingratitude. Haven't you seen ingratitude? Haven't you seen people who have had so much given to them and, and their response is one of ingratitude? It's almost like they expect certain things. It's one of the attitudes that we deal with even within our children, isn't it? And we want our children to appreciate good things. We want our children to appreciate things that are theirs, the blessings that they have. And so when our children would convey just a spirit of presumption and ingratitude for things that they have received, 
we address it. Because we recognize that there's a, there's a rightness to being grateful. It's interesting that when we turn to Romans chapter 1, which we're not turning there, but if we, we consider what's recorded there in Romans chapter 1, and where there Paul begins to go through the, the nature of the grievous sins which those who have turned away from God give themselves to and are in turn given unto by God Himself. Early on in that list, it says that they were not thankful. They did not give thanks. They did not honor God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. It's almost as though this is a beginning point for a life that becomes ensnared with such horrible, horrendous sins as we find there in Romans chapter 1. When there is a refusal to recognize that there is a God. And because God is not recognized, He is certainly not thanked. He is not honored. And so there is a seriousness to the sin of ingratitude, is there not? To the sin of <clears throat> thanklessness. So I think it is safe to say that there is nothing that is more appropriate for the people of God than the giving of thanks, gratitude, thankfulness unto our God. Because God's given to us much, hasn't He? We've received so much from the hands of God as the people of God. If there's anyone who ought to have a heart that's overflowing with a sense of gratitude, it ought to be the people of God. And so as we turn to this psalm this morning, Psalm 118, which has the expressions of thanksgiving and gratitude throughout it, that we want to join in this procession of this one who is leading in worship and ways to express our gratitude to God for what He has done for us. And first of all, one to consider the call to thanks. To consider the call to thanks that we have here. Although this, this psalm is given in the context of the Psalter, it's given as a song, not just for an individual, it's given for corporate worship, for corporate singing, there's much in this psalm that has an individual focus. There's much in this psalm that is for corporate worship that has first person pronouns. I and me. Verses 5 through 7. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I will look on those who hate me. Verses 10 through 14. All the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. They surrounded me in verse 12. 
Verse 13, you pushed me violently, but the Lord helped me. 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. Verses 17 and following, I will not die but live. And tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. Verse 21, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. (coughs) And then in verse 28, You are my God, and I give thanks to you. Much here in the way that has an individual focus. But see, some things we know here, the psalm begins and it ends, like almost like bookends here, the beginning and the ending here, with an identical call for thanks and words of praise. Verse One, as we read, give thanks to the Lord for He's good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 29, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. So you have this beginning and this end all the same place. It begins here and He ends here. So we have this call for thanksgiving has in it a personal Basis. Look what he says in verse 28. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. And then from there he goes to this call to worship. Give thanks to the Lord. For he's good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. There is this calling forth to others to join in the giving of thanks that is initiated from his own heart. You're my God. I will give thanks to you. And then he looks to all around him and he says, Give thanks. Give thanks to God. For he is good. I desire to express thanks to my God and I encourage all who will join in with me in this psalm of thanksgiving unto God. What's the reason, the basis that he gives here for this thanks? He says in verse 1, he says, he's good. He is good. You don't get much more simple than that, do we? Starts with God is great. God is good. And here the psalmist reminding us of this very basic and simple truth. God is good, but His goodness is very clearly demonstrated in verse 1. In what way has He shown His goodness? He has shown His goodness by His loving kindness. His loving kindness that is everlasting. His eternal Never ending. And the word that's translated in the NASB as loving kindness comes from the Hebrew word hesed. A variety of translations. Some translations will use the terminology His steadfast love. His mercy. But the idea is that God freely and lovingly binding Himself to the care of His people. He's committed Himself freely to love us and to care for us. And so, here the writer, he, he thinks of this, this 
Hesed, this loving kindness, this steadfast love, and he sees it's an everlasting love. It is rooted in the character of God who does not change. This is the goodness of God that he speaks of. God freely and lovingly committing himself to the care of his people. That's goodness, isn't it? God doesn't do it because he has to. He freely pours out that hesed, steadfast love, his mercy. So with such a consideration of God's loving kindness, here the psalmist, he rightly calls on God's people to join in the chorus of thanks and grateful praise to God. Then he gives a threefold invitation, verses 2 through 4. He says in verse 2, Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 4, Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. And we find this paralleled in Psalm 113, verses 9 through 11, the invitation to Israel and the house of Aaron and those who fear the Lord. Let Israel say, His loving kindness is is everlasting. Would it, is it not right that Israel, those who descend from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, would it not be right that they would speak of the steadfast love, the loving kindness of God, had they not experienced such? Any who had received the benefits of God's covenantal promises as these people had, it would be good and right for them to say, come and speak of His loving kindness that is everlasting. So He rightly calls to the people who ought to be able to say it. The loving kindness of God is everlasting. And then he goes on, the house of Aaron. The house of Aaron, the the priestly family. Those who serve in the intermediary role between God and His people. Those who are on a regular basis because of their work of offering the sacrifices. Those who are compelled to consider sin and sacrifice and pardon as a daily duty. Those that would have it freshly ingrained and pressed upon their mind of the weight and the greatness of our sin, yet there is a provision made to experience forgiveness, how freely it should come forth from their lips. The loving kindness of God, His loving kindness is everlasting. And then those who say in verse 4, those who fear the Lord. Don't know for sure here if in this, again we're writing in the context of, a, of the Psalms. And so there are things that are given to us in, in the Psalter style. Sometimes there's, there's repetition because we do that. We have repetition in songs, Right? So we look at the Psalter and sometimes it's not real clear 
because of the because of the particular genre of literature that we're looking at, what may be implied here. And so the possibility is that here he is simply speaking of those who fear the Lord in verse four as a term uniting the former two groups together. Speaking of the house of Aaron and speaking of the Israelites together, or it could be, and I think many are inclined to the position that rather than that, as he uses the term here, those who fear the Lord, that he is adding to this those who are non-Israelite converts. In the New Testament, those who are referred to as God-fearers. Those who have been brought into the covenant community. Let these lift up their voice, saying, His loving kindness is everlasting. So it's certainly descriptive of those who have been graciously awakened to glory. To the glory of the true and the living God. Those who rightly reverence Yahweh according to the revelation of His word to them. And if he is speaking of those who are outsiders who have been brought in, that's certainly a very clear picture of us today, even as we as the Gentiles who were grafted in. We're not even of the we're not even the natural tree. We didn't fit. But God grafted us in, and so is it not fitting that we say and join in here with the psalmist, his loving kindness is everlasting. Everlasting. So the expectation of those as he as he exhorts here, this threefold invitation, such as these that have reason and obligation. They have reason and they have obligation to give thanks unto God. And how appropriate for us today as the people of God, the church. The New Testament church. We're there in First Peter chapter two, verse nine, or Peter tells the, the saints there that you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is the church. And what greater blessing, what clearer revelation that we have given to us. If this is the confession of those who lived in the days of the Old Testament with all that was not as clear as it is for us, yet they are compelled to lift their voice in gratitude and thanksgiving unto God to speak of the loving kindness of God being everlasting. How much more we who live in this day in the New Testament age, in the age of the New Testament church, how much more ought our hearts be moved to gratitude and thanksgiving because we see things so much more clearly looking back. It's almost it's almost alarming that such a call seems necessary. Why does someone have to stand up and say give thanks to the Lord? Because I find where you have the commands of scripture 
those commands within the, within the Scripture address our shortcomings. They address our tendencies. And they address our sins. Otherwise, they don't need to be there. Right? And so, when we have here a command, give thanks to the Lord. It's a clear reminder of our tendency to be thankless, is it not? But not only should we join this chorus of thanks, be those who join this chorus when called upon to give thanks unto the Lord our God, but also to be those who are quick to call upon others to join in this chorus of thanks and praise and thanksgiving just as the psalmist is. To exhort and to encourage one another to be thankful, to express thanks and gratitude to God. It's a healthy reminder to us that we have much to be thankful for as the people of God. His loving kindness is everlasting. God's freely, lovingly binding Himself to the care of His people. And so in light of that, we have a call given to us to join, to join this chorus of thanksgiving unto God. Secondly, we want to confess. We are to confess the cause for thankfulness. Here the writer <clears throat> elaborates much on his personal experience of God's loving kindness. And as we've already mentioned, that there is, there is so much here that is in the first person, as are a lot of the Psalms that are to be sung corporately. Now, there are a few times that we have taken some songs, and I was the minister of, of music and youth in the former church that I served in, oftentimes would take some of the courses and the songs that we would do that were written in first-person singular pronouns, and we would sing them in first-person plurals. Instead of I's and me's, we would sing of... of we's and us and those type things. However, I think it's fine to do that. I hope it is. I've done it. But I think it's also an indication to us here by the inclusion of these psalms in the Psalter, the hymn book for corporate worship. At least two things are implied. Number one, that we rightly share in one another's joys resulting in gratitude to God. This, this psalm, psalmist here doesn't hesitate to go from, here is my personal experience, you give thanks. <laughs> right? This is what God has done for me, you give thanks to God. And so we rightly share in one another's joys and the experience of thanksgiving unto God. The second thing I think that's implied because of this is we also we share a similarity of experience, don't we? That my little life is not so unique as I might think it is. So that I can look at a psalm as this, Psalm 118, and I can read of the experience here of the psalmist, and I can sing this and, and join in with this and know 
this is very much what I have experienced in my own life. The particulars are different. The details are different. But the general truths of God's salvation and God's deliverance have not any of you been in a time of distress and experienced the, the power of God? And so that we can speak of, in verse 5, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. Have you ever done that? I could have written a good part of this psalm. And so there is at least that implied as well, that it allows for a personalization, even as we're singing these psalms and sharing from these psalms and we're reading about first person, that we're saying, man, this is me too. And so it's not a stretch for the, for the psalmist here to say to us, after we read of his deliverances, you give thanks too because our minds ought to be going, yes, that's my story too, and I'm going to give thanks to the Lord. Because God's loving kindness, His everlasting loving kindness, has been shown to me just as much as it has to Him here. But note here the cause that He gives for thankfulness. As we confess the cause for thankfulness, number one, His cause for thankfulness is the Lord hears. The Lord hears. Verse 5. From my distress, what do you do? I called upon the Lord. And the Lord answered me. I called and the Lord answered. His comfort in this, in verses 6 and 7, the Lord is for me. See, Paul wouldn't stretch. He said that in Romans Chapter 8, if God be for us. It's right here. The Lord is for me. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is for me among those who help me. So it results, as he sees, he is comforted in this truth of the Lord being for him. He sees, therefore, the limitations of his foes. The Lord's for me, verse 6. What can man do to me? If the God's for you, what can anyone do to you? And I hope our answer to that is nothing more than God permits. So it is in seeing and resting in the comfort here of God being for me, that He sees my foes are very limited in what they can do to me. And in verse 7, The Lord is for me among those who help me, therefore I will look on those who hate me. Look with satisfaction on those who hate me. So his conclusion, as he states here in verses 8 and 9, it's almost like he's come. He's adopted a little life motto here. Let's summarize this thing here. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You have to wonder. You have to wonder to what degree he's proven that. He's proven the faithfulness of the Lord. 
He's proven that it's good and it's right to trust in the Lord. But I wonder on how many occasions that he has put his trust in men and has been disappointed. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. I've done both. Haven't you? I've trusted man. I've looked to man. I've looked to the resources. Even this man. I've looked to myself. And I've realized it's better to trust in the Lord. And even to be one of nobility, princes, one of some influence and power and authority, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than it is to trust in princes. So the Lord hears, but also He says here, the Lord helps. Verses 10 and following. He speaks here. We're not going to read again all these verses. But He gives this picture here of the, His enemies. They've made this circle around Him. And you get the idea that this, that this circle is getting smaller. You know, they're, they're closing in around me. My enemies, they've encircled all around me. They've surrounded me. There's no place to go. I don't have an escape hatch here. And they've come, they've they've circled around him. And he testifies here of the Lord's aid. So his confidence here in verses 10 through 12, he says, I will surely cut them off. He says three times to drive them back. I will cut them off. In verse 17, I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. That's his confidence. But what's his confidence based in? It is based in the confession that he gives in the following verses. Verse 13b, beginning point. The Lord helped me. The Lord helped me. It's not that he is now encircled by his enemies so he's left to his, to his own creativity, his imagination. He is free to confess, I will drive them back, but it's not by my power. It is not by my resources. It is the Lord who has helped me. In verse 14, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Verses 15b through 16, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord, His strength is revealed by His right hand. So it is the right hand of God that does mighty things. And then he says in verse 18, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. So the consequences of God's faithfulness in verse 15a is this. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tent of the righteous. It's how we respond. There's, there's joy. There is the song of salvation that is expressed Whatever is appropriate, whatever sounds and, and, and speech is appropriate to those who have been delivered, it comes forth. The sound of joyful shouting, the sound of salvation in the tents of the righteous. So the writer here, the psalmist, as a man of God, he rightly interprets his life events with a God-oriented lens. 
He sees his life. He interprets his life with God as the focal point. In his time of distress, what does he do? He calls upon the Lord. And he even recognizes as he comes to confess there. In verse 18, as he speaks of the discipline of the Lord, that what the distress I find myself in, I rightly interpret it as being discipline from God. He's disciplined me severely. You know, that so clearly takes us to the writer of Hebrews, does it not? When he speaks of the trials there in, in Hebrews chapter 12 that the people of God endured, he's, and he calls us to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and he says not to despise the chasing of the Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about the trials that you find yourself in. See your trials as God's chastening hand, and don't try to figure out, well, this this trial is consequent to this sin, so it's like justice. That's not the way to interpret it. You interpret it as a sovereign God who controls all the affairs of our lives so that what does come to us as a trial, as a hardship, that God uses it for our good. It's not justice. It's God... Sovereignly controlling all that happens to us for the work of sanctification in our lives. You know, let's just do away with this questions when something happens to us, some trial comes upon us. Let's just get rid of that question, what have I done that this has happened to me? That is not an appropriate question. An appropriate question may be, why, Lord, have you brought this upon me? But he's given us the answer. It is for my glory. It is for your sanctification. There's the why. So when we ask the question, we know the answer. In his distress, he calls upon the Lord. And he regards this distress as an appropriate discipline. And his deliverances, when he speaks of the deliverance of God, the deliverances he experienced, he confesses the Lord's goodness. He confesses the Lord's might, the Lord's power, the Lord's involvement in what has taken place. Seeing the hand of God in all of life. To live a God-centered life. And shouldn't we be doing the same? The times of our distress, yes, we cry out to God, our gracious and our compassionate and our mighty Father, but to regard the the trials that come upon us as appropriate discipline for us in this work of sanctification. And in our deliverances that we experience, to be quick to confess the greatness and the goodness and the glory of our God, rather than just wiping the sweat off our brow, so I was a close and glad that's over with. Give thanks to God. Acknowledge the Lord. Acknowledge the deliverances of God. Take time to say, Thank you, Lord. I have to work on that sometimes. Sometimes I get so bound up in being 
delivered from the great trial, I forget to say thank you. But to live a God-centered and a God-oriented life where, where it freely comes, where it readily comes to our minds and freely comes forth from our mouths, thanksgiving and gratitude unto God for what He has done. He hears us. He helps us. And have we not, as the people of God, many deliverances for which to give thanks? Just in the days of this past week. Well, I haven't experienced any great deliverances this week. Have you not been tempted to sin this week and ask God to give you aid to deliver you from that? And my friend, if He did, that was a great deliverance. Amen? Yes. Great deliverances from the hands, by the hands of God. And third, to convey the confidence of the thankful. In verse 19... We have here a picture that's given to us as, as I say, it's a procession that's being led into either the, the city gates or perhaps even into the inner court of the temple. Some have, who it's specifically those who hold this was actually a psalm written by King David, that this would be David actually leading the way, leading the, the people through the gates that began outside the city of Jerusalem. And, and he calls for, open to me the gates of righteousness and I shall enter in them. However, it seems that this psalm was used likewise at points by the, by the priest, perhaps in the, even in the post-exilic period. So there was a call of even entering into the court of the temple of to open the gates of righteousness. That it was at least used there, if not authored there. So there's the idea here of a procession. It's being led by one. And the picture is one of a king. So I think we safely would... I'd have no difficulty at all with Davidic authorship of this particular song. But he speaks here with a great confidence. A great confidence in access to the place of God. It's not the, the vain confidence of the self-righteous. Rather, it is a confidence that is in God. He says, the gate of the Lord, verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous will enter through it. This is the gate that God tends and God permits these that are righteous, these that are His to come in. And then in verse 22, there he speaks of the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Perhaps those who despise the king, certainly those, there were those in the life of David who did that. Those who despised King David, deeming him unsuitable for a place of such honor as to be the king in their minds that he would be one, he would be the one that's rejected. He is the stone that the builders rejected, even the people of God rejected. And he says there that he has become the chief cornerstone, the king here, likely speaking of himself. Those which the, which the leaders would have rejected, he's become the chief cornerstone. By, by how? What's the, what's the power behind this? Verse 23. It's the Lord's doing. It is the Lord who has done this. It is the Lord who has made this one who was rejected. He has made him the chief cornerstone. 
And he speaks there of this day of victory, this day of triumphant entry into the presence of God. Verse 24, this is the day, what? That we've made for ourselves. This is the day that we have made ourselves fit for this occasion. No, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's not the fruit of our labors here. It is the mercy of God. Of course, we we rightly see in this of this king who is pictured here of the stone which the builders rejected. We rightly see Jesus Christ in that prefigured Christ, the King of Kings, Christ, the one who was deemed to to be unacceptable. Christ, who was rejected by the builders, the people of Israel. As Jesus applies this verse even unto himself. Luke chapter 20 verse 17. And, and then in Acts chapter 4 verse 11. It is applied again to Jesus Christ. He is the stone which the builders rejected. But he's become the chief cornerstone. See there is a common experience between those who are the people of God and God Himself. The people of God will always be those in some measure that are regarded as the those that are rejected. Because it is true of a master. So the king experiences here and prefigures even what is what is experienced by Jesus Christ Himself. And here he continues on. The day of victory, this triumph made by the Lord as a cause for gladness. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He petitions the Lord for His blessing. Verse 25. O Lord, do save. We beseech You. Do send prosperity. The blessing upon those who come to this place, not by their own resources. They come, verse 26, in the name of the Lord. What is our confidence? What is the confidence that we have to come through these gates of righteousness? Well, the confidence that we have is none other than the righteous one, the righteousness of Christ given to us. That that one who is the ultimate, that is the ultimate rejected stone, is our right of access. He has, he has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has exalted him. The Lord has made him the Christ. The Lord has made him the Redeemer and the Savior, whereby a multitude of others might come in and join in to the worship of God. So the righteousness that is proclaimed here by this writer is not the righteousness of his own. It's not the righteousness of having exalted himself and cleaned his life up. It is the righteousness that is imputed to him by God himself. That's the confidence that we have. So we can come with, a, with confidence before the throne of grace and say, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. 
I belong here. It is our right, it is our duty to enter through these gates into the presence of God and to worship our God. Because we have been given the righteousness of Christ that is required that we might have entry. Jesus, God's Christ, for the salvation of His people, the restoration of communion, So it is with confidence, it is with boldness that we enter the place of the righteous. All of Him, all His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ given to us as we come confessing our sin, confessing our need of Christ, that we come with boldness because of Him. So are we expressing our gratitude? Are we joining in that chorus of praise? Where is gratitude? From the hearts and from the mouths of God's people. Where is it? In your heart. In your mouth. Are you one who is who recognizes not only your oblig not only the privilege and the reason, but the but the obligation we have? Obligation we have to exalt the Lord, to give thanks unto Him, to consider the call that we have here. Give thanks to the Lord. Consider that. And consider who He is. Consider the loving kindness of God toward us that is everlasting. To confess that we have cause for God's thankfulness. He does hear us. He does help us. He does deliver us. And to know that even the trials of my life, I can see the good hand of God. And to give thanks that we can, we can come with confidence. We come knowing that we are received, knowing that we are accepted because the requirements have been met by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is sufficient. Nothing more to be added. That is enough. So we can convey the confidence of the thankful. Not presumption. But those who have been given a great gift of righteousness from God. Let us be a thankful people, those who give thanks unto our God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we, we give so little in return for the good things that we have received. And it is something of a, a shame to us that we must be called and commanded to say thank you. Lord, forgive us of our ingratitude. Forgive us, O God, of the times that we just simply become careless in our thinking and just fail to think, fail to consider that You are in all of our lives, that every good thing that comes to us is from Your hand. And we certainly fail to consider that in the midst of our trials that we have a God to thank in the midst of them to give thanks for His continued work of sanctification within us. So Lord, we give thanks to You. We ask You to keep these truths before us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.